2: Uh, Welcome to the education channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Tom DeSena, from the Department of Communication, Journalism, and Public Relations at Oakland University. My guest today is is David Madlin, the author of Reunion, How Bold Labor Reforms Can Repair, Revitalize, and Reunite the United States. In Reunion, David Madeline explores how labor unions are essential to all workers, yet union systems are badly flawed and in need of rapid changes for reform. Madeline's multi-layered analysis presents a solution, a model to replace the existing firm-based collective bargaining with a larger industry-scale bargaining method coupled with powerful incentives for union membership. David Madland is Senior Fellow and Strategic Director of of the American Worker Project at the Center for American Progress. He is the author of Hollowed Out, Why the Economy Doesn't Work Without a Strong Middle Class. David Madland, welcome to the New Books
1: Network. Thanks very much for having me.
2: David, I want to start our discussion with the subtitle of the book. Um, So how can bold labor reforms repair, revitalize, and reunite the United States?
1: It's a lot to ask. I I realize, you know, um, there's some major challenges in in the United States. You know, from among I'd name them, sort of stagnant wages, near record levels of economic inequality, large divides across race uh, and gender, significant mistrust, um, a political system that doesn't respond often enough to the will of the people, and. Uh, not that labor unions can completely solve all of those problems, but they are doing a a huge amount to address each of those problems. And so that's kind of the hope of the book is that we have a proven solution that we, if we sort of reform our laws a little bit, can um, help tackle these things that really enable ordinary citizens to have some power in the economy so that it works for everyone have some power in our democracy, and in doing that, it's sort of a key way to build trust among others as you reduce the overall level of inequality society, you feel that you have more in common with others, but also that the unions do the hard work of forcing people together around a common agenda, and they bring black workers together with white workers, with Hispanics, and really the the work they do um, leads to these pretty significant transformations.
2: Yeah, I think that's an important point to make. And and one of the things that attracted me to this, to this book in the first place, and the reason I wanted to, to bring you in for an interview. So as a solution to these problems, you suggest a variety of reforms for American labor, including um, robust union rights for all workers platforms and incentives to encourage union membership, and perhaps most importantly, broad-based bargaining in place of the enterprise-level bargaining that's going on right now. I'd like to ask you to explain some of what these reforms would do and how they would improve the power of workers.
1: Got it. So thanks. You, you hit on sort of the key th- things that, that I highlight in terms of policy reform. So the first were around rights. And this is where most of the debate around unions in the U.S. takes place. Uh, for example, the current law is so weak and it makes it so hard to join a union that a company, if they, for example, break the law and fire a worker for trying to join a union, there's no uh, financial penalty for them doing that. There's other things where we have limited, more limited strike rights um, than other countries, and you know workers can be permanently replaced as strikers and, and the like. And these are sort of basics that I think we need to get right. And that's, you know, there's a law, a bill in Congress that has significant support, even in past the House of Representatives with some Republican support, which was remarkable these days called the Protecting the Right to Organize Act. And so, but that's, in my view, the first step that just sets a baseline. But then the second and the third elements, the second is about incentives to encourage and facilitate workers to join unions, because I think of unions, and I think we should think of unions this way, as a public good that provide benefits to all of society, um, not just the workers who are members of them. And the benefits that I'm referring to are a functioning democracy that works, that has a bal- reasonable balance of power, uh, similarly an economy where wages are higher uh, and benefits are better for all, all workers. Um, but the thing about public goods is you workers can free ride on the benefit on the efforts of others. So we get less of a public good than we might optimally want unless we do things to encourage it. Now we can get into the weeds on sort of exactly one of the elements of a public good. We think of the sort of debate around unions and public good right now is in my view, very limited. It's limited to this idea of right to work, where some states you don't have, you know, you don't necessarily have to pay any uh, dues or agency fees uh, if you are covered by a collecting and bargaining agreement. I think that's part of the public good argument, but I'm referring to a much broader concept of of a public good, not just people who are directly covered by a contract, but all of us. Receive benefits from uh, you know a functioning democracy and and economy, and so I want this broad conception. And you know, when we think of other policies, we like we we value small businesses, for example, as a society. Mm -hmm. Um, And we don't just say, "Hey, you know what? You have a right to go out there and compete with big business." We actually say, "You know what? There, this is a good thing. It actually makes." It, it worked for everyone because if the big business didn't have competition and if we didn't have, we wouldn't have as much innovation, we wouldn't have. So we, we want to support them. And what we do for small businesses are things like antitrust laws. We give them preferences on government contracting. We have significant amounts of loans. So we do a whole range of things for that, those things. And I think the same analogy applies to unions where we actually wanna make it easier uh, for, and possible for workers to join. And then the last policy uh, framework I think about is improving the way we bargain. And most of our bargaining in the United States is done at a worksite or even sort of a group of workers within a particular worksite by worksite. So say uh, all of the clerks at a supermarket at one particular location, of the supermarket, they'll bargain. That... Uh, contract that they negotiate won't necessarily cover even all workers in the store or all clerks at the similar at the owned by the same company in the same location, let alone their competitors. And so that gives us this very fragmented kind of bargaining that tends to cover far fewer workers, but also um, leads to a lot of sort of the firms that, that fight unionization very strongly because they fear that if they get unionized, their worker their workers going to cost a lot more than their competitors. When unions are very strong and have been strong in the United States, we have been able to achieve a different kind of bargaining, which goes by many different names called sectoral bargaining, multi-employer bargaining, broad-based bargaining, industry-wide. And I want us to make it much easier to achieve that kind of bargaining. And I hope, you know, we'll talk about the history of how we actually have had some of that in the United States. But um, so the goal, again, are these rights that are a baseline. The uh, creation of encouragement, we actually want to encourage unions. And the last thing is to improve the way we bargain, not just do it at a really narrow level, but also do it at a broader level to cover most workers in an industry. So similar work, receives similar pay.
2: Yeah, and I want to sort of um, and again, we'll talk a little bit later about um, some places where something like sectoral bargaining has taken place in the United States. But just to your point about the uh, the way that uh, unionization starts to help even workers who don't belong to the union. And, and this is you know, a small example, but my wife worked for an advertising agency that served um, the Daimler Chrysler and they were, of course, covered by the UAW contract. And the UAW contract has a provision that they got election day off. And sure enough, that whittled down to the management at, at uh, Daimler Chrysler. So they got the, the day off. And then, of course, the ad agency got that day off as well. So, you know, these, these benefits trickle out in, the, in sort of the same way that we think of, you know, businesses trickling jobs down to other people. But the benefits of unions trickle out as well.
1: Absolutely. That's in some ways the core goal of this broader based bargaining is is sort of in the U.S. system. The benefits that unions achieve trickle out through a very informal and um, incomplete process. So some workers might be adjacent enough to the core company that's unionized where they get the benefits, but many others who are sort of further removed won't. And so in the sectoral bargaining kind of system, you can actually more formally and directly ensure that all similar workers receive the benefits that unions negotiate for.
2: Yeah. So in the third chapter, you describe well, what you call the contours of a modern labor system, which focuses on, on, again, those two themes. First, improving the regulatory climate for unions and second, encouraging broad-based bargaining. Um, what I gather from this chapter is that the U.S. is a long way from such a system. And so I was hoping you could explain to our listeners some of the deficiencies in our current labor system.
1: Yes, we are a long ways away. That is true. Um, And, you know, the chapter largely focuses on comparing the U.S. a little bit over our history, but especially compared to other countries. And um, the differences are, are, I think, are quite glaring. So we talked a little bit about the rights aspect, and we are certainly such an outlier on the rights that workers have um, in terms of their ability to Freely and fairly joining union. Just one, you know, we talked about one example about being potentially being fired and no financial penalties. But Human Rights Watch is an organization that normally looks at less developed countries and says they're, you know, nowhere near where they need to be on democracy. They've done that about the US and our labor system and the rights we have. And they, you know, found they're grossly deficient. But the other things that we're uh, sort of deficient on compared to other countries is how we encourage workers to be able to join unions. So there are many things that other countries do to enable workers and make it easier for for workers to join unions. Some allow much greater worksite access so that work unions can can be on the premises of worksites more easily. And so you're more familiar and have an easier way of recruiting and retaining members. Others, and one of the core things that I really highlight is what's known as the Ghent system that um, countries like Sweden and Denmark and also Belgium have where the unions help run the unemployment insurance system. And that gives them access to workers outside of the workplace, but also enables them to provide a tangible benefit to workers. And it's seen as a core way to keep union density at a higher level. And my argument is not that we need to replicate the system exactly that these different countries have evolved towards over their history, but that we can take sort of elements of it where unions actually, you know, where we want unions to help deliver uh, and gain people access to benefits because that leads to, for example, actually better, um, you know, in, the, in the case, better unemployment insurance systems with much higher take-up rates with more workers getting access to, but also just the recognition that this is a way to encourage and incentivize union membership. And so the, that's one area where we're way behind the rest of the, the world is just the, the things we do, do to incentivize, encourage union membership. We make it not only workers don't have rights, but we don't even really allow unions any favorable treatment. We just say, hey, maybe you could go do this, let alone ignoring the, the, this public good problem I described, but also the basic tenet of capitalism that employers have a lot of power. And if you're going to ignore that employers inherently have this power to dissuade um, workers about what they want to do, then you need to compensate in some way. It's sort of silly to ignore that basic fact, and you need to compensate in a way and these incentives or encouragement of uh, unions are another way. And then the last thing I talk about uh, in that chapter and really highlight is how we are different from the rest of the world is almost every other country, in the world has a very long experience with broader-based bargaining. And the results they've achieved from that are much greater. It's sort of very, one of the clearest things in research about unions and bargaining is that broader-based bargaining systems cover a lot more workers and lead to much lower levels of economic inequality in society. It's sort of very clear across every country when you look you know, just at sort of data today, but also when you look at countries that have switched different kinds of systems when they went from an enterprise system to a broader based system or a broader based system to a more enterprise system. And so there's pretty clear research showing that. And and I I think it's, and and more than just this broader levels of equality, it's also quite good for these sort of big gender and racial pay gaps, because when you're covering more workers, more workers get the equal pay benefits you tend to get from a union. Right. So you're raising wages more for black workers, Hispanic workers, women, um, and compressing the, the pay scale, which is really very, very helpful for those especially towards the bottom or tend to be at the bottom of the, of the distribution. And um, you know, so it's, I, I walk through this, this research that it's what I, what's, you know, I, I'm bringing this together, which I think is new and novel, but it's really what most of the rest of the world yeah. has understood through their their realities. And when you talk to researchers in those other countries, oh, yeah, that's pretty clear. We tried it this way. It didn't work. And then we've gone back to uh, this broader based system or work or they're really worried in countries even like Germany, which many think of as a model. But their broader based system is eroding. And so they are starting to struggle with some of the same challenges we are. Um, and they're uh, quite worried, sort of obvious, that as their, as their broader-based system is bogging is down, they have not been able to ha- raise wages as much, and their inequality has gone uh, up significantly.
2: With, with all of the attendant social problems that comes from that as well.
1: Yes, sadly, uh, yes. So
2: you, you then compare the labor system in the United States to sort of our, our cousins in uh, Canada, Britain, and Australia. And there's some notable advantages, you know, living here in Detroit, we're just we're across the border. So we look at Canada and think things are terrific. Um, but can you identify some of the strengths and weaknesses of, of those systems as they, as they compare to the U.S.?
1: Yeah. And so, yeah, I wanted to look at the countries most most like us, Canada and Britain and Australia, because I think there's a tendency, especially in the United States, to discount the um, how relevant is an example from Denmark or Sweden or, or Germany. Um, but I think it's harder to ignore when the, the countries that are most like us and have a very similar history, their former colonies of Britain or Britain itself, large land masses, in, especially in the case of uh, Canada, rugged individualism in uh, many cases as well. And so um, I looked really closely both at what their current bargaining systems in these countries, as well as their sort of history of evolving. And um, I think there's a, a similar story to be told from all of them that highlight the case for basically encouraging union, have strong rights, encourage unions and broad, and broader-based bargaining. And let me elaborate a little bit on, so the Canadian example, Canada has the sort of labor law that is most like the United States of any other country. In fact, their labor law was based on the Wagner Act, which was the American labor law in the 1930s. Um, And they, so they really kind of adapted our system. And then over the years, they made some slight improvements to it while we weakened our system. So they have um for example no ability to refl- no striker replacements they have and, and also their provinces can enact labor laws as well that are go above what uh the federal floor sort of sets so a lot of states have for example car provinces have car check sign up right they have kind of in some ways they have the the uh, depending on how you think about it either uh, pre Taft Hartley um Labor Relations Act, which was Taft-Hartley was 1940s law in the United States that kind of weakened sort of one of the foremost things to weaken, yeah, um, the Wagner Act, or it's kind of what's in the PRO Act today. Um, And so it's it's a significantly better system, better improvement on what the U.S. has today But the story in Canada is sadly not that different than the United States. Their union density is uh, significantly higher. But when you compare just private sector density, it's not that much higher. And it's been in pretty consistent decline over recent decades. And that has led to the basic kinds of problems you'd expect, stagnating wages, higher inequality, racial divides and the like. Um, And, you know, the slight. Um, interesting kind of caveat here is that Canada has a a tiny bit more uh, history and policy that supports sectoral bargaining. And they are really uh, very much thinking about and pushing and trying to uh, expand on those small uh, sectoral bargaining systems they have as part of the, the future. And this is not This is kind of where most of the labor movement is in Canada, by no means all, but a big chunk of the labor movement. And they are starting and have had some real policy debates about moving towards a broader based bargaining system. And the the story, so that's, you know, the Canadian story really emphasizes that just rights aren't enough. Right. The British story and, and the Australian story, I'll sort of tell in tandem because both of them really highlight the power and importance of broader based bargaining. Both of the countries used to have um, kind of from the early 1900s until the 70s about had a, had a pretty su- successful broad based bargaining system based in different, in different ways. And we can go into some of the, the details about what's different about their systems, but they had the successful systems and then both got rid of them. Um, and have had, for again, predictable consequences. Not only did the broad-based bargaining systems lead to a lot fewer workers getting covered, uh, led to rises in inequality, stagnant wages. It also undermined the ability of unions to recruit because businesses then fought the union uh, unions more and more because they were worried that as they, uh, if they allowed firms to unionize, they would have higher costs than their competitors. The and what is, I think, particularly revealing about the Australian and the British case is the British case. It was, as you might guess, that the conservative Thatcher government went, wanted to target unions and wanted to weaken them. And so weakened the bargaining system and did some other things to try, really try to keep, kill unions. The Australian system was weakened in part by labor unions yeah. and the labor government. And that's because some labor unions thought they could do a lot better because they had a little bit more power, market power at the moment. And they thought, well, if we can get the absolute most out of our contracts and forget, we don't have to bargain for everyone else or have our contracts linked to everyone else, we could do better. But it turns out they can't. And now they are deeply worried that they're constantly getting undercut. Even the strongest unions are getting un- getting undercut. Um, and so the, the unions there and the labor party in both countries have made a strong commitment to, and it's sort of one of the top agenda items in both, uh, by the labor party in both countries to try to renew the kind of bargaining system they used to have.
2: So, and and one of the themes that pops up in this chapter, and I think maybe we'll return to it a little bit later on is the relationship that you described between, um, as I recall, the, the in British unions don't have an official uh, status within the government. Um, and, and so most of their power was derived from the, essentially just themselves and their membership. And so we run into this issue between, um, you know, the folks who want to see labor unions strengthened by themselves and then an improvement in the regulatory, sort of a, a bottom up and a top down approach, I think is probably the best way to put it.
1: Yeah, and there's a, there's a both a real tension. You know, my my book emphasizes the sort of top down the policies that we need to achieve, but I'm not naive, and I don't. I, I think that you need both. That you're never going to achieve both the policy change, nor is any system going to work without a bottom up, real grassroots power, real organizing, real workers in motion demanding change. Um, but my argument is that the bottom up is not enough on its own. And that's where I think the British case is a really good example, because as you mentioned, their law was largely um, leaving 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 unions alone to negotiate whatever they wanted with employers. There were no laws that, you know, for much of the time, uh, British law had no laws determining who was a union member, what it took. Right. Unions could just sort of make make it up, whatever they could get the employer to agree to. That was... Uh, and sort of the government's role was to ensure that there were no, you like, you know, courts interfering with injunctions and the like. But what, uh, <laughs> what the, and so the unions in that country, um, and they had a really high density up until the '70s, 50%, for example, really quite high. And but the unions sort of believed that their power was solely on their own. They didn't realize that there were actually a, kind of a number of government backstops supporting their high density that they sort of had forgotten about. So for example, much of the growth that they had was during World War One or Two, where there was actually kind of an inherent structure that, that pushed workers into unions and, and sort of kind of a neutrality, but also that for government contracts were favorable for union companies. And so there was this um, sort of ignorance, I- I guess, are willful ignorance and thinking that they were solely responsible. Now they are much, the union position is we recognize and we need government policy to be favorable towards unions in order for us to succeed. So again, my argument, yes, it can be parodied as just a top-down approach. It's you need both. And I think there are several books that already emphasize the power of strikes or workers in motion and think that that is solely the answer. And my view is that's not enough on its own. Um, and the British case being one example, but you know we can talk about sort of history in the U.S. as well that I think is supportive of that kind of argument as well.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
1: At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in
0: the way of life-changing care,
1: and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best
2: Yeah, and including some contemporary examples, and I hope we'll get to talk about those later. Um, Just last week, I had the opportunity to hear Secretary of Labor Marty Walsh uh, address a room full of high school and college students here on campus. Um, In his remarks, he talked about a past where workers could get a good job at a unionized firm a middle-class wage have job stability and a hope for the future um i was not exactly sure what generation of students uh he thought he was addressing with those remarks um because i don't think it described any of the high school kids that that i was looking at around me um but but that was a real thing once upon a time right i mean the what he was describing was real he was just probably about 30 years Past its expiration date, um, I want to talk a little. Ask you to talk a little bit about um, some of the uh, skepticism that you address in the book, uh, especially around um, this idea of uh, broad-based bargaining and and how it does have a, a past here in the U.S. Maybe around the idea of pattern bargaining.
1: Yeah. So you know, broad-based bargaining. Is American, it's not just a foreign import, and you highlighted one of the core ways we have achieved that in the past is through pattern bargaining. And you know, you're uh, in Detroit and know that the auto industry for much of the 20th century uh, was able to achieve contracts that covered all of workers across the auto, auto workers across the nation through what's known as pattern bargaining, where they would. The auto workers would negotiate with one of the lead firm, big three, GM or Chrysler or Ford, and that would cover all of the plants for that uh, firm. But then they would negotiate a virtually identical contract with. Uh, um, the other two. And that set the standard for all auto workers and then all adjacent kind of workers, farm equipment, but an even, you know, spread throughout the economy. It was this treaty of Detroit was right. often seen as the core thing that built the middle class in the United States. And people sort of forget that it was actually built on broad-based bargaining. Um, Absolutely. And, but the, the pattern was not the only way we achieved it. In fact, many U.S. industries, we have a strong history, and they were achieved in many different ways. So the other example would be steel, where, again, through a similar time period, the, we, there and there it was kind of more multi-employer, where there was a group of employers. There were a handful of leading steel firms, but they negotiated across the table with the steel workers at sort of a single table. Um, mine workers had something we even had in, in apparel, and communication workers. And we can go into sort of the details of each story, but generally, the way that this sort of broader based bargaining was achieved in the United States was by very high union density that took oftentimes decades of uh, strife to achieve. You know, the sit down strikes in, the, in auto um, and the like, where it was, but, and they, and then auto, they got to, nearly wall-to-wall union density. And that's mm-hmm. what was required to achieve this pattern. The only way to force the employers to the table was to say, we got everyone that's unionized. But even with all that power, the, it was sort of a pretty fragile system because our law discourages broader-based bargaining in a number of ways. And so that the only thing holding it together was pure union power. But in the 70s, uh, you know, and, and into the 80s, the world changed a little bit in ways that made it much harder for auto industry to be nearly 100% unionized. There was sort of greater foreign competition. Mm-hmm. There was also then the, the moval, moving of plants in the US to the non-union South. And those were incredibly hard to organize. Um, still are. And st- yes, <laughs> definitely still are. And so at the, then these Forces meant that the unions could order no longer keep everyone at the same table, and so they would—they were the auto industry would say, "Oh, we're suffering. We need—we need a special deal for this place or this plant or whatever it was." And their whole deal kind of crumbled. It also crumbled with parts where they had much, a little bit lower density, and so the parts were kind of—they kept spinning off. The instead of you know, could you, union could only hold on to the core menu. Uh, assembly, but the parts were getting further and further spun off, lowering, you know, leading this low road competition that was undermining the core deal. And so the core deal could no longer spread benefits out to others. In fact, it was harder and harder to hold on to. And a similar story applies to these other industries in the U.S. that I talked about, but just sort of one stat that I think is worth mentioning um, about the scope of broader base bargaining in the U.S. So In 1980, kind of just as broad-based bargaining is kind of starting to fall apart, but still exists at a pretty significant level, about 40% of all collective bargaining agreements in the United States were broader-based, covered multi-employers. They weren't necessarily perfect sectoral, but they, in many cases, like the pattern bargaining, were pretty close. And so this is something we once had a lot of, but we only were able to achieve through this incredibly high density. And I think we can achieve it again with uh, policy changes that both strengthen unions, but also make the kind of bargaining easier to achieve.
2: Yeah, and I think it's also, you know, sort of a contemporary example. I was thinking about this um, in preparing today, that the, the sort of red state insurrection that took place just a few years ago took place largely in places, you know, we think of them as red states, of course, but they were also places where the teachers were unionized statewide. As opposed to in in smaller discrete districts, so you know in Michigan we have a fairly strong um, fairly strong teacher unions, but they all negotiate with their independent districts, and so there's not the possibility for a broad sector, and so we're seeing. I think, you know, the response to COVID is an interesting example where in the county I'm in, um, there's a mask mandate. So everybody, all the teachers go in and they feel relatively safe and protected. But the county just a few miles down the road, um, everybody's unmasked.
1: Yeah, the teachers, I think, are a really good and interesting example of a number of the themes I try to highlight so you know these teachers strikes in 2017 were some of the most successful worker actions we've seen in this country in quite some time and some of the core reasons you, they were successful as you mentioned is they were tend to be statewide in these red states so that the teachers could really they were seeking to bargain with the power brokers that actually were the where the money was with the with the state legislature and the and the governor and when they were fragmented in little districts they don't necessarily have that Ability So this broader base gave them the ability to actually bargain with the decision makers. But we also saw that policy really was helpful to them in ways we wouldn't necessarily see. So uh, a lot of the times their strikes were illegal. Sure. Um, they weren't, they you know, weren't legally allowed to strike, but they had friendly administrators who said, oh, you know, we're not in school, not in a session or these sort of other kind of looked the other way. So that they actually didn't have the full force of government coming after them and seeking restitution, but they were actually had support. In fact, the school administrators were very much oftentimes on their side saying, yeah, though teachers aren't getting paid enough. Our schools don't have money. We support we, we support the strikes because they are going after the very thing we need.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Um, so. I started. I first started
2: reading your book over the summer, um, when I think that the expectation was that there was going to be significant portions of the population would be vaccinated, um, the government support for workers would expire, and then employment would return to something more or less like uh, what it was before the pandemic. And instead, uh, we are experiencing labor shortages in a variety of different sectors. Uh, a wave of employees uh, were leaving the workforce in what's been called the great resignation. And I think of particular interest for us, um, unions starting to flex some muscle um, and going out on strike or threatening to do so. So in your final chapter, you talk about the steps needed to build this new system of labor. Um, So is this a particularly propitious moment for this discussion to take place?
1: Yes, things are looking better. It's, you know, it's in some ways you can think of this as the best of the world's worst of world situation. Yeah. Uh, Easy story is the worst of world's private sector union density at basically historic lows. Uh, you know, wages have been stagnant for quite some time and all these sort of challenges that we know about. But some core really good, important things that are necessary for the kinds of changes I'm talking about in this book, or in fact, most any kind of progressive economic change are starting to happen. And the strikes that we're seeing today where are, are I think, illustrating some of them. And so we see the kinds of things that I think are necessary are, are you know, workers are going to need to gain more power on the ground and need to actually start mobilizing for things. And we are starting to see that. In fact, we started to see that a little bit in 2018 and 2019, before COVID shut everything down, where there were, um, you know, high levels of strikes in the past 20 or 30 years. And now again, with Strike Striketober, as some are calling it, um, that uh, there's a, this huge pent-up demand where workers have been frustrated for a long time. And COVID sort of just highlighted and exacerbated these inequities where they're literally putting their lives on the line and busting their butt while corporate profits you know near near record levels and so the power has shifted a little bit with this labor shortage because they're not so easy to replace and and so they have this moment where they can um take action and workers in the streets and demanding things is is a is necessary but it's not sufficient for the kind of change the other kinds of change that i uh, other kinds of preconditions I see as important that are starting to happen are a favorable public climate towards labor, where the public, as well as especially politicians, recognize the value in having labor. And you can see that in polls right now about the, about labor unions, just about as high a support as we've ever seen, where more than 60% of the public says they approve of labor unions and think they should have you know, power. And especially the important thing is around politicians who have the ability to change the laws and make it so that we can have the kind of system we need. And President Joe Biden has really been a revelation um, on this. You know, He said he wants to be the most pro-union president, and he is definitely making inroads towards, uh, towards that, both from really strong statements, but he also, he has a, a White House task force that is going to, uh, in the next you know, probably by possibly by the end of this month, report to the president on things that the administration can do without Congress that will help labor unions. And then there's bills in Congress, which are at least getting votes and attention. Um, And then on terms of these much broader changes that I'm talking about, that are not just about, you know, union rights, but like sectoral bargaining, the, you know, during the democratic presidential election, Uh, primary, sorry, Democratic presidential primary, where Joe Biden won, most every Democratic candidate had a plan for sectoral bargaining. The Democratic um, convention, the, the Democratic platform also has talks, references, sectoral bargaining. So it's, you know, still a ways away from where we need to be. We can't even pass the basic PRO Act, which is really, you know, a basic set of rights that all workers need and deserve and would just put us you know, back to where we were in the 1930s. Um, So it's, but there are these really promising signs. And um, the other element of the promising signs that I think is worth talking a little bit about are state actions. Now, the federal law, or at least the way the courts have interpreted federal law is it preempts most things states can do to help labor unions, Um, and they can only hurt labor unions through things like right to work. Right. Uh, but there have been a number of states that have, for example, passed these workers boards, which are a kind of a tripartite way of getting towards sectoral standard setting, where you bring together representatives of workers, representatives of employers, and representatives of the public to set minimum wages and benefits and working conditions. And there's a really important bill in California called the Fast Recovery Act, which would do this for fast food, where
0: mm.
1: the, it's been virtually impossible for workers to unionize through traditional means. If you, the workers unionize at one franchise, the franchise says, no, we can't pay our, con, you know, our franchise agreement. We'll let us raise our wages or we're just going to close down this particular franchise and the one across the street will pick up all the business. So it's really been a very hard, you know, it's very, very hard for traditional means of organizing and traditional means of collective bargaining to get uh, the workers an improved deal. And so this is something a state has the ability to do. And, uh, you know, it's, it's very seriously being considered and I think has some chance of passing this year and other states could do the same.
2: So there's a there's a and just anecdotally, when my union was out on strike to start the uh, the fall semester, and this is not the first time that I've walked a picket line at this institution, um, but I will say that it it was the first time where I didn't get yelled at to get back to work
1: it's an other anecdote i think it's really the anecdotal information is also really powerful here because i feel it a lot as a longtime advocate for unions but as someone who um, is usually in an environment where i'm talking to politicians or other sort of prominent uh, left figures who aren't necessarily union at their core and i will say compared to where we were 20 years ago, 10 years, or even five years ago, it's radically different. The reception I received instead of saying, nah, why do we want unions? Why do we want, Oh, actually you're right. And I think much of that is due to, you know, there's sort of objective factors of like, of the, how long wages have been stagnant in this country, literally for almost 50 years inequality at, you know, 19, like it's just amazing levels. So there's that, but there's also this, I think, growing recognition of the political fear that people have of how close we are to having the worst of the worst elements of, of uh, authoritarianism sort of takeover, whether it's corporate and uh, right-wing populist sort of potentially either one of these sort of powers having way, way, way too much power and the grassroots democracy as it's embodied in unions, right. Is necessary sort of counterbalance, and I think people are really getting that in a in a way they hadn't understand it. Sort of felt theoretical before, but wow, no, now we're there's a real threat, and this is one of the few solutions that's out there
2: yeah and and also to your point this, this last strike, not only did we get more people honking their horns in support of us, but we also had more politicians joining us on the picket line than I have ever seen before at a at a faculty union strike. I mean it, by my own admission, I don't know that we're the most sympathetic workers that you could possibly find to uh, to champion but but there they were. And, and they were holding our signs and, and marching with us. So um, yeah, it's a, it's a different environment and, and I hope one that uh, I hope one that people will take a, pay some attention to uh, what you're advocating.
1: Well thank you. I certainly certainly do too. you know I think it's um, in some level, my view is it's almost inevitable that we are going to have to pay attention to unions and the kind of solutions I'm talking about because, we're in this moment where we sort of everything's on the on the table. We're afraid and worried about some paths forward in the future, and we're what could possibly work to get us out of this. and And it's the evidence is really so clear. You want to raise wages. You want to have people have a stake in democracy. Who really and be um, having their information come through a channel that actually cares about the system is not trying to right. take it down. Is Uh, that's unions. And then, okay, well, what's the best system for helping unions succeed? You know, I think as I'm arguing in my book is like, this is pretty clear. It's you look at pretty much any country or the U S history, and these are the steps you need. You need rights, you need incentives and you need a bargaining system. That's actually going to ensure workers can achieve a collective bargaining agreement.
2: Yeah. And and again, this is, you know, maybe even a little bit weedy for this conversation, but um, when our union, we represent both um, tenure-track and non-tenure-track faculty. And some of our, our contemporaries at other institutions, those are divided unions. And, and life for the non-tenure track people are is much worse um, when they are not under a, a big umbrella like that. Yeah, and so, so it's, I mean, it's big... a small version of, of sectoral bargaining. But, you know, the more people that you can bring into the sector, obviously, the more power you have.
1: Absolutely. And it's that the power of the sort of most powerful workers can help everyone right. not just look out for themselves now it's but it's also good for those who have power too that's what i think is clear is that you as you know tenured st- faculty also are doing well but you're able to pull along everyone else which helps those workers but in the long run is kind of the only security you have if you're just on an island yeah. and everyone else is you know getting poverty wages the it's uh, unlikely to be able to hang on to that
2: Yeah. Well, David Madeline, uh, let me ask you, what are you working on next?
1: Oh, um, well, the there's sort of some practical things about kind of trying to implement some of this agenda. I mentioned, you know, there's some things I think we can do through executive action. Prevailing wage is a policy that we haven't talked much about, but I really see it as a core way of expanding on sector bargaining and building towards it because prevailing wage is things like Davis Bacon or the Service Contract Act where a government contractor needs to pay what's called the prevailing wage. And in some cases, that is the union wage when unions have enough density to set it. But it really, so if unions have some density, it amplifies their contracts and, and makes that the standard for others to follow. And so I think we can do a fair amount more with the prevailing wage, I mentioned the state campaigns um, in California to, to build some of these councils in in areas where you really can't organize the workers um, or get improve their standards in any other way. And then I think a lot of it is also about um, moving, saying yes, and that we are now having this conversation about labor unions and. Um, saying, yes, this is exactly what we need, and we need this additional set of policies. So it's about leveraging this moment where there's renewed interest in unions and making sure that we don't just correct the problems with Taft-Hartley, but we also build um, an agenda and a policy that is really geared towards the modern economy. Because we've sort of only alluded to this a little bit in this conversation, but the other core thing about sectoral bargaining is it really is – Particularly well suited to the way modern firms are organized, where they increasingly fissure their workplace through layers of contracting and yep. subcontracting or franchising. And that makes it harder and harder for the for a union to bargain with the real decision maker or to ensure that they're not constantly being undercut by fracture, fracturing of their of their labor market uh, in some ways. So this broader-based bargaining is really core to ensuring that that firms can't just shapeshift to escape a union collective bargaining agreement.
2: Very good. David Madlin, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate your taking the time to be on the New Books Network.
1: Well, it was a real pleasure. I love uh, to have a, an opportunity like this. And so thank you.
2: Okay. Once again, my guest today has been David Madlin, the author of Reunion, How Bold Labor Reforms Can Repair, Revitalize, and Reunite the United States, uh, from the ILR Press, and imprint of Cornell University Press. My name is Tom DeSena, and this has been the New Books Network.